Welcome back to the Fight Site MMA podcast. Uh, we are here on probation because we are being punished. Uh, since we missed a week or two of, of podcasting, uh, and some of that wasn't entirely fault. Uh, the UFC schedule, the UFC looked like they kind of burned through all of their best content early. Um, they gave us, you know, the Gaethje Ferguson card, which was pretty awesome. And then we had a couple uh, of weirder events. Kareem <laughs> Harris and uh, Anthony Smith over to Shara. Can't blame us for missing that one. And this week's card, actually tonight's card, we are recording this on uh, May 30th. Tonight's card is Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns. Another fight that we really just don't care that much about. Um... However, we do need to. We do. We're reminded by our producers that we need to have a more consistent schedule. So here we are. Um, joined with us is a uh, fight site. The mind behind the fight site. Uh, what do we call him the historian. I'm just going to call him a historian. I'm not even going to specify that it's combat sports. Um, Kyle McLaughlin. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, Danny. How are you? Just living the dream, as always. <laughs> Loving this quarantine. Two full months into it, uh, and it just keeps getting better and better. As always, my co-host, Sriram. Yeah, hello. Um, I'm also living the dream, but it's not mine. What else's dream? Uh, maybe it's Trayvon's. Wasn't Trey the one who gave you Sriram the second? Oh, yeah. That was, roll with that that. was great. Yeah, that's good. Um, and today, we are going to answer some patron patreon some patron questions uh and specifically some patron questions about uh mma long past like think back 150 ufc pay-per-views ago that's kind of the era that we're gonna address today um it's obviously why we have kyle with us because he is extremely well equipped to talk about this era as well um since studied it and written about it extensively um but today we are going to be addressing two questions from our patrons kid yamamoto and uriah faber fought around 2005 i think it was 2006 2006 yeah 2006 okay so that kind of that era um how would that have gone if bj penn had fought uh, Gomi, back in Pride, 2005. Would that have gone? And then to wrap things up on a real uh, bummer note for for our good friend Keith, why did Mirko Krokop's UFC career out so poorly? Was the what was the reason? What were the keys there that just kind of led to pretty depressing run? A lot of knockout losses and a lot of losses to people worse than himself. Uh, so we're winding the clock back today, and that is kind of what we have on tap. So, well, I'm gonna let you take the reins. Which one do you want to address first? Uh, we'll go with the fantasy fights one first, if that's okay. Um, that question as well also sort of said, uh, any other fantasy fights that you know, you not fantasy fights, but you know, fights that conceivably could have happened that didn't. and me, the big one is always going to be Adol versus Brock Lesnar, just because it would have 
it might have put a nail in the coffin of this kind of UFC supremacy talk and um, Fedor would have widely been considered the uh, best heavyweight of all time and not just within a certain contingent of uh, fans. But one of them, enough that I always wanted to see, was Iba versus Yamamoto. 2006-2007, it could have probably happened um or you know it should have it should have happened and uh, i think if we dissect the way the fight goes you know you've got to think you know would there be elbows on the ground because faber was pretty handy with those and uh being a cage because obviously faber was more equipped with that but um in terms of the dynamics of the, the styles i think it'd be a amazing fight either 145 135 it doesn't really matter they both fought at both weights um see around that time both fought Bibiano Fernandez, who went on to be one of the better bantamweights of the of the next decade or so, and still somehow competing at a relatively half decent level now. Um, and yeah, they both won those fights in, in different fashion, both fights. Um, in terms of the styles match, I mean, it's hard to pick, but if see Yamamoto comes from a wrestling background, but not not the greatest MMA wrestler. A Faber known for being a you know a really good in scrambles and a, a crafty submission artist. A Faber pretty what uh, one route with a with a striking good counter right hand, good timing on the right hand, um, nice elbows. Mixed it up a bit more as his career went on, but uh, generally not the not not the most fearsome striker. I think that's fair to say, although uh, a, a good striker. Um, me, I'm I'm just going to say that. Throughout his career, Faber has always been open to right hands. Um, Griffin blasted him with one early in his career. Brown blasted him with one in his featherweight prime. And Burrell caught him in their rematch at Bantamweight. So, I don't know if I'm being unfair there, but Faber, I'm not saying Faber's got a bad chin or anything like that. He's always been relatively durable but um, and tough, physically tough. But I just think against someone with a Yamamoto, just had sleeping power, obviously. Very athletic guy. Comes straight out the gate and smash people up. And Faber really didn't really didn't really face many people that were as good an athlete as he was. So, so am I being unfair to sort of lean towards Yamamoto to spark Faber out? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't think that's unfair at all. Uh, Sir, go ahead. Yeah, I'm in about the same place. I mean, I haven't watched a ton of Yamamoto because I'm not the historian that Kyle is. I think Faber, he's generally good for performances that aren't, like, embarrassing. If, like, you know, he, people don't tend to just come out and blast him out the way Yamamoto did for his, like, super quick knockout that made the rounds. But a lot of Faber was just the right hand. He could switch it up with an uppercut once in a while. Once guy started ducking, that was, like, the one kind of tricky thing he had. But a lot of Faber was just being, A, very, very hard to wrestle and, like, you know, hold down. And, B, just being a pretty good athlete for the weight class and you know that made a striking work so Yamamoto could have been pretty tough for him in that respect. Before Danny says anything I want to interject Shram you've got to watch Kid Yamamoto you, you'll really dig him trust me he's I'm not sure. one of these archaic caveman type fighters. Yeah I've really gotten to watching like full fights. You, you know me I'm not just I'm not just being sentimental because he's, he sadly um, has left us but you know I've always been a big fan of his and I think you and a lot of the other analysts on our on our site would would really dig Yamamoto before he came to the UFC because he was already a physically 
chop by that point and was still pretty good. Um, but physically, yeah, I, mean, I watched a little bit before this episode. Spent... Just, you know. But... Yeah, I think I'm in agreement. Um, he Yamamoto was a dynamo. Uh, like he was a just a really dynamic fighter at his time, and but he was also he had better fundamentals. And sometimes he what he did have a tendency to sometimes just sell out with like a flying knee. But the thing that I keep going back to with Uriah Faber is that when it comes to just if you're just gonna lock Faber into a striking match, um, he like you said, Kyle, he's open for right hands, but he's also just. It also doesn't generally take much more than like a decent kick that you can mix up, which Yamamoto has, and a jab or like an active lead hand. And Faber, throughout his entire career, you know, as much as he's been, you know, branded as like this sort of tough action fighter, has like no fear or whatever, um, kind of just befuddle him with a couple of basic tools and of the times when he's when he's lost he's often been kind of pretty badly uh blown out of the water by people who can just sort of sit at mid-range anticipate the right hand and peck uh i don't i don't know if i'd pick yamamoto to finish him well actually maybe I don't know. Yamamoto's a pretty gifted. He's a pretty gifted finisher. Um, but Thoughts part of me quickly. feels like Honey, I just want to say quickly that I think if Yamamoto wins, he wins just by doing something crazy and athletic relatively early. I, I got a feeling that the longer it goes, the more I would favor I favor because you know Yamamoto's not going to leap into a guillotine or anything. But Favor was pretty crafty grappler. He loved loved to scramble and you know even against Yamamoto, I could see him snatching something. I guess that's true i guess there's a there's an opportunity for like he he was the more dynamic finisher and quicker um but i i do think that i've seen i've just seen faber fall apart uh and just kind of get get befuddled by too many decent outside kickboxers that i would also or if we're going if we're taking them as is in like 2005 2006 i, I got i have to pick i probably have to pick yamamoto he was a more complete fighter at that point um he was more more competent uh and he was you know more dynamic so yeah that kind of feels like the right pick we think yeah. that I, don't, I don't personally think that i'm sorry Shram, are you gonna have another note on this fight uh, no you can go ahead nothing I, I was going to say, Ngomi in 2005 doesn't really tantalise me too much. I'd still pick BJ Penn. I just think he's got general overall toughness and just more rounded. I think he Ngomi at any stage of their careers. The fights that away, I know we, we all agree that Aldo versus Pettis is one which just sadly never happened. And for the lightweight title, that definitely should have happened. Um, is there anything you guys... Big fights that you guys wish you'd seen, or maybe more niche ones that just never, never happened for whatever reason? Uh, I think Max Holloway versus Chad Mendes somewhere before, like, Mendes left his prime. I don't know how exactly the timelines match up for that, because Mendes, he seemed to kind of fall off a cliff, or at least after the USADA suspension. But that could have been a really, really terrific fight. Uh, it might have been Holloway a little bit on the come-up, because uh, really ho prime Holloway was after Chad Mendez's prime, but I think there was probably a solid window there 
where it would have been an interesting fight, not just interesting, but very instructive for Max Holloway, uh, considering, you know, he would have been fairly young, and Mendez would have been a tough fight anywhere near his prime. So that would have been one that I would have liked to see. Um, not, not much else. I mean, since uh, the guy who asked the question explicitly said, no, Formiga or DJ, I'm going to spite him and go for flyweights anyway and say Davis and Figueroa versus Dustin Ortiz. But, you know, that's just a spite pick. Hey. Um, I, you know, this is a weird one, but because um, we technically saw it. We got to see, and Serum's going to love this, we saw a Sun Sal Faber and yes. Faber actually won it. I feel like any other point in in their careers, I feel like a Sun Sal probably would have probably would have just just Washed shut, him. shut Faber down. I don't think it would have been particularly competitive. And the you know the odds would have been the odds would have been ridiculous on Faber. So but I also I, there were some more fights there were more fights from Dominic Cruz and WEC that I, I feel like would have been would have been fun to watch. I don't, you know, I mean, even if we can kind of, they're a little predictable. I think they would have been interesting if we had gotten uh, Cruz versus Miguel Torres could have been fun. Yeah. Miguel Torres was still a force. Um, I think uh, Benavidez probably would have beaten Demetrius Johnson in the WEC too. I don't think DJ was really much of a force at that point. Um, so there's, there's a couple, I mean, so if you, for people who don't know or, or haven't really seen or haven't gone back to revisit a lot of, a lot of, uh, WEC fights, it's, you might be surprised how many of your favorite fighters have fought around that period. Um, like you, you know, most people, you know, most hardcores know that Benavidez has fought, you know, Cruz twice in that period. Um, but Faber fought a bunch of guys too. I mean, that's kind of, you know, Jose Aldo fought Mike Brown. Um, Miguel Torres got guillotined by Benavidez. Uh, like the lightweight division was interesting back then too. You had, you know, the beginning, everyone's seen the Showtime kick, but I don't know how many people have seen the full, uh, um, Benson Henderson against Donald Cerrone fights. Both of them. Amazing. Yeah, they are. They're a grappling. They're super fun. Uh, Carlos Condit had a really fun run as the WEC champion. Like, there's just it's stuff like that. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I have a bunch of like matchups in my brain that I like really want to see that I haven't seen. Apart from you know maybe Aldo moving up a little earlier than he did. Because when it comes to fighters, when it comes to these sort of dream matchups, it, it it's hard to kind of separate that from the fact that it can. It could alter their careers in ways that you may not even expect. Um, but I would just recommend going back to WEC and watching like 135, 145, 155, because you might be surprised how much crossover there is. How many guys, how many people have fought that you may even have forgotten? You know, I, sometimes I just forget myself that Dominic Cruz fought Ian McCall in WEC. And I, I remember yeah, watching that pretty, fight years pretty ago. Pretty uncle creepy. Doesn't look right. He hasn't got the moustache or anything. It doesn't look right at all. Not creepy enough. That was his problem. 
definitely not creepy I mean, enough. Since we since we mentioned Dominic Cruz, I think one that probably deserves mention is Dominic Cruz right. versus Prime Henan Barrow. Uh, definitely. It didn't Ooh. it didn't quite match up. Cruz only came back from his like seven injury layoffs after Barrow um, lost the belt to TJ Dillashaw. But I think it would have been really interesting because it kind of matches up in a weird way. A lot of you know a lot of what people found in Barrow after Dillashaw was that he didn't like really fainty movie fighters. And I think that could be a little bit reductive considering that Barrow is a more committed leg kicker than anyone Cruz faced since, other than Cejudo who kind of came in with like a dedicated plan to. So that could have been a very interesting fight and probably necessary to kind of reconcile Bantamweight a little bit if Dillashaw didn't show up at least. What do you think of this one? Uh, think that uh, clout for beating Dillashaw in the end anyway. So I think it worked out okay. Um, at the time, I really wanted to see it. At the time I really wanted to see it, but um, in the end, we found out that TJ Dillashaw was the best bantamweight in the world, and not Henan Burrell. So you know, um, back and forth. Him. I know you guys disagree on with with me on who won that fight. I'm very much of the opinion that it could have gone either way. Um, so for me, who's coming back even later? An even younger, even more impressive fight. Well, I assume TJ. I think TJ is actually older than you think he is, but I think he was younger than Burrell. I'm not 100% percent been older, but he was younger in his, in his career, so to speak. Um, you know, and that's a really compelling fight. I love the, the Cruz um, EJ fight. I think it's a fantastic fight. Um, interesting. And yeah, so for me, yeah, Burrell versus Cruz obviously should have happened, but didn't and we got to see another the making of another all-time great so what we essentially got in the end was two all-time greats fighting each other and you know i can't i can't i can't be annoyed with that no that was good yep. um i i do kind of wonder about that one because i think and cruz can't be bailed out with a takedown um on protracted sequences of striking and Barrow was, you know, for all of Barrow's flaws, while Barrow, you know, if he got past the first layer, Barrow had a tendency to just go wild. Um, but I think he actually could have, he might have been able to trouble, he might have been able to trouble Cruz a bit with his ironclad takedown defense and the fact that he was a good, he had a good jab, a good lead hand, and a good leg kick. Um, if you're if you're wondering yeah. what I'm talking about with Uriah Faber, like that, you watch the watch the Barrow fights <laughs> because that's that is basically the story of those fights, especially yeah. the, especially the first one. Like Faber is just stranded and he's completely he's completely clueless. Like I can't right hand him and I can't take him down. What do I do? Um, I don't know. I I think that whereas someone someone like Michael McDonald literally sort of the stalked forward with his right hand cocked looking to land a, a bomb and both Burrell and Faber were able to deal with that relatively easy. Um I yeah I don't know. I'm I probably have to favor well I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm more split than I should be. I know the 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 prevailing narrative is that Cruz is just a more defensively sound version of TJ, but that's not it's not really true, um, especially given how TJ fought Barrow, because he just, 
TJ basically just threw caution to the wind, tried to to faint Burrow's counters out, and then just just tried to light him up with you know everything he had inside. It wasn't um, to how he fought TJ, honestly. Um, I guess I'll I guess I'll favor. Uh, you know, I'll go crazy. I'll pick Burrell. I think I think Burrell has enough um, enough tools that he probably could have locked Cruz out of his comfort zone, and uh, would have been a pretty ugly fight, but it would have been interesting. Give me this. Give me this, and go out to my one. Need all the uh, reigning Daniel Pride and Whammer champion, 2009. Just knocked out Arlovsky, so he's a bit susceptible to pressure by this point, but he's still able to pull shit out of his out of his bag. Versus the Lesnar that had just beaten uh, Randy Couture and Frank Mir in the uh, in the rematch, but he hasn't fought Shane Carwin yet. So instead of fighting Shane Carwin, instead of Fedor going over to to Strike Force and fighting Brett Rogers and eventually losing to Verdum, he goes to the UFC and fights Brock Lesnar for the UFC heavyweight title. How does it go? Go ahead, Sir. Uh, I kind of think Fedor just washes him. I'm not... I think I have a tendency to kind of underrate Brock Lesnar in the UFC because he did some very impressive things, but a lot of it was just being a crazy athlete. Uh, I think he could have... I think Fedor could have struggled with just someone who was big and strong, but then again, he didn't really do that in Pride. I think Fedor is just a deeper fighter at that stage, um, especially since he hadn't, you know, lost his prime yet. He was, I mean, he wasn't 100%, obviously, but he wasn't, you know, as washed as he turned out to be in Bellator, home of the olds. So I think, I think Fedor would have figured out a way to shut him down. Probably finished him, honestly. Um, I mean, here's the thing is, Fedor's takedown defense has never been amazing. And he's never fought a bunch of, like, really concerted wrestlers. So there's reason to believe that Lesnar could potentially get him down, but uh, yeah, but I mean, I has Brock I faced I, anyone with a good bottom game? Oh, that's the thing is like I don't think that just because Brock takes him down, I don't think that's the fight over. I think Fatal was really marking up at that point. I do wonder whether some of those ham fists to the head might have fucked his eye up? I mean, Maybe. I get a feeling it might have been a bit like the uh, you know you guys know I'm not picking Brock Lesnar to beat Fatal, like you know. I'm never going to pick against Prime Fatal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just get a feeling like it might have looked a bit like a uber athletic version of the Bigfoot Silver fight. Just getting dominated by a bigger dude. Um, and, you know, Lesnar was crazy. He'd just throw himself into all sorts of, like, really slow hands, but obviously big, heavy hands. Like, I could just imagine him sort of stupid flying knee done at Cain Velasquez. I could just imagine him doing it and just busting Fatal up immediately. I'm not saying he's going to win. And like um, you know, it's it's perfectly conceivable that Fedor pulls something out of, out of his ass on the ground because he's just he's an amazing, obviously an amazing bottom player, and you know, he, he submission out of out of nowhere essentially always. Um, you know, there's always the chance that there's no gases out, and then it all just beats the shit out of him standing up. So, um, I I think that's what. It's a compelling fight, though. You've got a fighter who should definitely win, but we know now that he was a bit past his best. The guy that I think gets a little bit underrated because, you know, we always mind about heavyweights being big and shit, but Lesnar was trying. He was a genuine athlete for the weight. He was always in shape, and, um, you know, he passed 
every test with flying colours essentially until he didn't. So um, I, I think be hard pressed to find uh, many heavyweights that would go on that run and, and win all kind of seen nowadays that you know oh well as soon as he faced someone good he lost and I don't necessarily think that's the case I don't think any novice sh anyone who's had one professional fight against um, uh, who was essentially a midget um, should yeah. be beating beating Frank Mir okay he lost that first Frank Mir fight but you know his second pro fight and he gave Frank Mir a, a good challenge before he lost and then beating obviously Heron and Couture and Amir again, and then coming through Shane Carwin. Everyone says, you know, Shane Carwin's going to destroy him. Nearly did, but he came through. I've always got this fear about Brock Lesnar as well. I think he's got like a really, his chin is made out of absolute iron, but he is terrified of getting punched. Yeah, he I've, do you don't really see him, really see him visibly hurt. He reacts in the way that people do when they haven't done natural, you know, at getting punched in the face. But in terms of actually getting visibly hurt, like, uh, I mean, his facial expressions say he's getting hurt, but his legs don't go. You know, he's not the kind of guy who got knocked down easily. Um, you know, I think generally, I think he was a pretty tough dude, but um, Fedor could bang. So, yeah, I'd probably lean towards Fedor, but I think it would have been an amazing fight. And it, heavyweights go, it would have been a massive spectacle. Heavyweights are pretty dumped now and, and not very good. But, you know, <laughs> as heavyweights go, that would have been a... That would have been a pretty fucking good fight, to be honest with you. But that's that's just my opinion. I know I'm a little more friendly to the big dudes than you are keith galvin right now is listening to this podcast going yes <laughs> very happy well he's not going to be when we get to crow cop but one last comment on that is i think i broadly agree what i was just saying before is like i don't just because brock could take fedor down i don't think that would necessarily mean the end of the fight um and like you said uh, not only was Lesnar pretty nascent at that point in his career. I mean, in fairness, Lesnar just has not had that much pro experience as a fighter, which is probably part of the reason that he he just is just it's so foreign to him. He's just so uncomfortable being punched and kicked because it's it's just not what he's used to. Um, like I, like you said, it's not really a physical durability thing as much as it's like a it's just like someone who doesn't spar, someone who isn't isn't used to this sort of environment. So yeah, I think I think Fedor is the the right example. It's hard to pick. Um, it's hard to pick a lot of heavyweights over over Fedor. Um, that said, he was a little bit getting a little bit long in the tooth by that point. Um, and if if Brock was able to just consistently take Fedor down, he might have he might have been able to win it just off off size because I'm sure the size disparity is probably pretty massive. So that's what I got. I would be Mr. Segway because I've got a perfect Segway. But <laughs> I've got, a, if I, if I may, yeah. for the heavyweight championship. Uh, but it, I'm pretty sure the UFC didn't want it to be that way because uh, they tried twice to set up Randy Couture against a uh, certain Croatian uh, striking specialist. And uh, I'm going to throw it back to you guys for the next topic. Yeah, so the exact question was um, how or what were the reasons for Krokop not doing particularly well in his UFC run? Obviously, a legendary uh, kickboxer in Pride who kind of killed most of the guys he faced. And in the UFC, he, I mean, he avenged the Gonzaga loss, but overall, it wasn't uh, terribly impressive. Um, so, what were the reasons? I'll probably hand it back over to you because you're the historian. 
I'm not really going to come up with the reasons. I think you boys would be better at that. But you know, a bit of context. Um, a Crow Cop, he did have his up and downs in Pride and in kickboxing. But like you say, he was one of the deadliest strikers in Pride. At that time, Pride did have the, whether you guys will agree, but I assume you will, they did have the uh, roster of fighters and certainly um, certainly heavyweights. So, um, yeah. Crow Cop, obviously, I know, being the age I am and where I was at the time, that Everyone wanted to see Crow Cop in the UFC. Anyone I knew that was in the fighting, especially martial arts, they knew Crow Cop was. It wasn't some random aspect or some random dude. It was often on TV, on Eurosport in, in England. Um, people were watching Pride. People in America knew he was. Um, certainly, um, there was a bit of a crossover because he'd, he'd obviously smashed uh, Bob Sapp's eye in. So... Slim fans, pro wrestling fans knew who Crow Cop was because the Kayfabe magazines used to cover um, Pride and uh, because there was that crossover with pro wrestling and people used to, a lot of people knew who Crow Cop was. So when in the UFC, he, he was actually on a really good run. He'd won the Openweight Pride uh, GP and taken the last of Vanderlei Silva's prime, smashed him and beat Josh Barnett. Um, they'd had a bit of a rivalry and he, and he, he really did smash Josh Barnett. And, um, in the UFC, for some reason, they, they gave him Eddie Sanchez to start off with. Now, Sanchez is a name that everyone's forgotten, but he was a kind of semi-notable heavyweight at the time. Undefeated prospect, and, you know, he was about as good as the UFC was at building fighters at the time. Um, new fighters. And Krokop smashed him relatively easy. Um, some reason, I, I don't know the reason, but everyone wanted to see Krokop versus Randy Couture. He brought Krokop in the fight Randy Couture. Didn't make the Randy Couture fight. Randy beat Tim Sylvia for the title again in August. Instead of just keeping Crow Cop until August, they had Crow Cop fight Rob Gonzaga. See, everyone remembers Crow Cop getting caught with a kick, but that's not what happened. He, he got the shit kicked out of him beforehand, and uh, he said he was really dazed. And then obviously, then he got kicked. So it's not like Gonzaga just used his own technique against him out of nowhere. He'd already been on the ground and authorised basically and probably the, definitely the best performance of Gonzaga's career he was a pretty good heavyweight at that time and um, they had Krokop versus Congo Congo you know again this heavyweight and then he was a good he was a good size good shape pretty well um, I'm uh, battling a sneeze um, he was, you know, his, his ground game was it was terrible, but he was he was working on it. Um, and generally, I think Cop did not look great in the Czech Congo fight. Uh, two one in rounds, maybe three nothing to Czech Congo, but he also got kneed in the balls a lot. And John McCarthy looked like he was going to take a point off, and he didn't. So, if again Randy Couture, uh, yeah, and again yeah, exactly, and again Randy Couture was there. And UFC clearly was saying, right, okay, if you win this fight, we'll make the Randy Couture fight. And it never happened. And then he walked off for a bit and fought um, Chan, uh, Hong Man Choi and uh, Overeem. Overeem uh, pushed his testicles up inside his body. So he got injured again. And then Crocop came back again. And then he's the Crocop, which unfortunately a lot of MMA fans from today know, the kind of guy that was losing to like Nelson and uh, for such guys. And, you know, sort of went win-loss, win-loss and loss-loss win. And somehow Krokop's had a kind of resurgence and it's done, you know, gone back to kickboxing and, and won the Ryzen GP. And as a 45-year-old dude, he, he's still pretty good. He, he's pretty swole. He's a big dude. And 
really still a technical striker and um, his ground game was always pretty good, to be honest with you. He was a really good sprawler in his prime. And my con- my only theory for him making it in the UFC was um, a little bit of uh, arrogance. I think he kind of, after he walked through Eddie Sanchez, I think he looked, he was in the game against Gonzaga and he paid for it against a fighter who was clearly a, a world-class heavyweight at the time. Do wonder whether the and I don't want to say too much, obviously, but the the training practices and schedules of Pride are well known. Do wonder whether there was a quote unquote adjustment coming over to the UFC. Um, that took something from Crocop. Also, he was also like you know he seemed to be banging his prime, but never know. He'd been fighting for over ten years, and you can never really say anything. But as I say, he's still a really good. A good fighter today, you know, he's still getting results against fighters he probably shouldn't be beating. My only question to you guys is is there any difference in obviously there is a difference, but do you think there was a major difference in transitioning from ring to cage? Because when he came to the UFC, first time ever in a cage. Yes, the answer. That's what I that's one of the notes that I made when we were talking about this was like I don't know how many people of our audience have actually watched Crow Cop versus Frank Mir. I mean, Kyle, I know you have. Um, Serum, have you seen that the full fight, not just the knockout? Yeah, I've seen it. It was awful. I don't know why. I yeah, it. it's the worst. It's horrible. Um, and I was gonna say, like, think, I think a big part of that is Krokop really didn't know how to fight in in a cage. Like, he was. It was an uncomfortable place for him. He was, he was used to a ring where it has specific corners. And I don't know if we put enough emphasis on like how the difference can be, but like you do have to adjust your footwork. You have to adjust adjust your your ring craft when you are in a cage where you know the corners are not as tight, but there's you know there's more surface area than in a ring. And so I think. That was a big part of it was like Krokop would sometimes just put himself on the fence and just get clenched up and would just be, he would just be clueless. Like it was a completely foreign environment. Now, I didn't even consider, um, I didn't even consider the idea of uh, of the, you know, the fact that Pride wasn't really regulated when it came to steroids and the UFC was still, you know, more regulated, maybe not so much at that time, but there was some of it. That may have had something to do with it, too. Um, I realize, you know, when it comes to... When Suram and I tend to, like, mark fighters' downturn, you know, 10 years is usually our the mark where you kind of expect a little bit of a regression in some sense. But, you know, Krokop was only there for six, but it was a, it was a busy six. Like, this was a... If you look at the names he fought in Pride, this was not... He was, you know, Josh Barnett, Vanderlei Silva... Josh Barnett more than once, Fedor, Coleman, Randleman, you know, like... Nog. Nog, yeah. Uh, Alexander Emelianenko. Like, he's... Let's be honest. Like, this was this was a hard run. Uh, this, this was not a cakewalk. Um, he never had... He never had the, the greatest chin, uh, I don't think. The, I mean, all the best defense. All the best defense. Yeah, true. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the big one. Like if, if I was going to pin it to something, I mean, I'm not saying he would have won all of these fights if they had been in a ring. I realized, you know, by the time he fought Roy Nelson, he was 10 years into his career. Or so, but 
I think the the ring to cage transition was a nightmare for him. Um, and that was a yeah. It may like like I said, he lost to a lot of fighters who are not like who he is better than. Like there's a lot of stuff that Krokop does that you know is much better than a Frank Mir or you know a Brendan Schaub or a Roy Nelson or a Czech Congo. Like these are all fighters. I think Krokop is certainly better than, but it was it was a rough it was a rough transition. Yeah, I think the um, the resurgence in Ryzen kind of puts a little bit more credence to the um, prior to UFC regulatory. That's a good point. A good point. Because yeah, I mean, you obviously can't blame. And I love Krokop. Krokop's one of the like three or four heavyweights that I'd consider like actually worth watching in the context of like all of MMA, but. And you can't really blame someone for participating in the culture that Pride fostered. But I think there was a real difference there. And going back to Ryzen and killing people, it, it kind of, it does raise some questions there. I think the, um, the decline point, it matters less at heavyweight. Because, you know, as we, we've seen at heavyweight, there's a lot of guys who are like, 13, 14 years in, even more, lots of miles, guys like Andre Arlovsky, and they're still doing kind of well. So it's kind of hard to gauge with heavyweights. But yeah, I think it was a mixture of them all. There really wasn't a reason for him to get cup checked by the Congo, which that, that sucked. <laughs> that was awful. <laughs> Sorry. I just like, <laughs> that was such a, that was such a sad fight, but yeah. it was kind of like, it was just such a perfect I haven't listened. Congo to the core. Check Congo. Like I haven't listened to the commentary on that fight, but I'm guessing they're. I'm guessing Rogan probably said something along the lines of like, "Oh, you know, Czech Congo is like, you know, one of the most. These are like two of the most accomplished kickboxers in 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 heavyweight. Like, I'm sure you, like you probably didn't even. <laughs> yeah, have you ever I seen a Czech Congo fight before? <laughs> like the Pat Barry fight just kind of made everyone think he was something he wasn't. Crocop beat Pat Barry too, because Barry was really lighting Crocop up, and then he just capitulated and beat him. Um, Crocop didn't do too badly against ADS either, Junior Dos Santos. You know, I think obviously lost the fight. Um, he didn't again like Crocop's chin wasn't great, but he wasn't always getting blasted out. You know, he, he could he could still gut it out. Physically, he looked okay. He wasn't like um, it wasn't. Like, let me think. You know, like Vandalay Silva after Pride, after Crocop, really, he would get skimmed and on the chin or on the head and just be all over the place and be fighting clearly on just instinct alone. Like, Crocop didn't really look like that. He either got knocked Spark out or he was okay, um, which is generally what happens. But you know, I don't think Crocop looked like a physically pleated fighter or anything like that. Um, and obviously, you talk about his MMA career. Of course, he had a, he had a big boxing career and he was a, a really good amateur boxer as well he had a lot of miles on the clock and had faced had, had been hit in the face a lot for a very long time i just think it was you know a mix of all set the culture just the, the stars didn't quite align for him but generally i think taking into account his ufc career as well you know with some of the wins he did pick up i think we're all going to say he's a top 10 heavyweight of all time right yeah, I mean, overall, Absolutely. certainly. Big time. Yeah. And, you know, he's still one of the most dangerous strikers in uh, heavyweight MMA history. All of MMA. You know, he, he genuinely was a brutal kicker, a really good takedown defense. And, and in the end, he was, you know, he was a, he's a pretty good grappler as well. He was not, he was not to be trifled with on 
the ground at all. That's why he was able to dominate Josh Barnett, you know, who, again, is no slouch on the ground. And really, um, I don't really think anyone dominated him after that run until DC. I know he was fighting sporadically, but um, as I remember, Crocop gave him a bit of a whooping and then everyone was scared of Josh Barnett. I'm not really sure that happened. Basically, he just didn't fight Fedor, I guess. They wouldn't have been that scared of him then. But Josh Barnett went on a really good run. And um, I think... I think I made the case in my Fedor article that just as the Crocop, people can say the Crocop win doesn't look that great for Fedor because he fell off a cliff not long afterwards, a couple of years afterwards. Um, I think Crocop did more than enough post Pride career to still show he was a world class heavyweight. He wasn't elite anymore, and I think that's that's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think we could actually link this back to the fantasy matchups thing for the first question. Because I think Krokop versus uh, Stipe Miocic might actually be, uh, you know, prime to prime, actually kind of interesting. Because, you know, a lot of Stipe is his jab and his, um, he hasn't really faced a ton of committed southpaws. So that could be an interesting fight to think about. I think prime Krokop would still be very, very viable overall in the UFC heavyweight division right now. Um, it's just, you know. There were a lot of changes to make, and he didn't make all of them successfully. In, you'd think with how Randy Couture was getting knocked out by likes of Chuck Liddell and not long after the uh, title run got knocked out by a big Brock Lesnar punch on the head that um, Crocop probably would have beaten him for the UFC title if they'd fought straight away. But at the same time, Couture was pretty good at stuffing people up against the fence and, and them up. So... Um, that's another fantasy fight and I'm, I'm sure most people would not equate Randy Couture with a fantasy fight but again I'm a little more sympathetic to the big dudes yeah um, I don't really have a whole lot to add there um, I, I am I may not be the most sympathetic to the big dudes but I am sympathetic to to Crow Cop here um, I'm happy with that I think it was I think it was kind of a raw deal in the UFC. Um, it did not reflect how good he was in Pride. Again, there's another fighter. I'm sure plenty of people, I'm sure many of our listeners haven't watched the entirety of uh, Cop's Pride career, and I think that's probably it's an evening worth spending, Kyle. Do you agree? Um, uh, before shouting out our site and all of our stuff, I want to say, ah, a Fight Pass subscriber like I am, seriously, just start a Pride 1. And spend a couple months watching all those fights because just like Danny was saying with the WEC, you see so many legendary fighters in Pride um, from the start, really, and you get to see, in a way, uh, the evolution of MMA as well. You know, you get to see a lot of specialists early on of uh, big names but not big skill sets. Um, you get to see a lot of violence. You get to see a different skill set to what you're used to in, in UFC. You know, obviously elbows on the ground but it's in a ring but a lot of head stomps and uh, soccer kicks which is always fun and exciting um and you get to see a lot of fighters that you know in the ufc actually like in their prime like shogun hua and, and obviously gomi and another such fighters vondelay silva and you get to see you get to see that the ufc sent their best guy over and he got his, his ass kicked so um you get to see fedor so and you get and then there's all the bushido events as well which features some of the most amazing uh, lower weight. I mean, Pride Bushido really was the WEC of its time in terms of, um, and I know WEC was, was going, but the Pride Bushido events were really incredible with some just amazing uh, lower weight fights. So 
um yeah if you're a fight pass member watch them all if you haven't already watch them again if you're not become a fight pass member i mean we're not paid for any advertisement obviously ufc doesn't know who we are i'm telling you as a fight fan the pass is really good there's so much kickboxing on there and an early mma and i um, highly recommend it with it fight pass can be annoying sometimes but it's it's useful if you watch and analyze and write articles as as consistently as we do so yeah i, I spend a lot of time going around russian websites to find random fights so fight pass is a big improvement even with the interface being garbage the interface is not, not right but, yeah, i so... think i'm i think i'm good on on this end um you want to do our our promos now? That Kyle, you were alluding to it. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I currently am working on a Elias Inahachi piece, who is the the one kickboxing flyweight champion. Um, he's very cool. I'm I'm looking forward to writing this piece. I also have a Brad Riddell article in the um kind of in the pipeline. I've been fiddling with it a little bit. Aaron, what are you working on right now? Uh, right now, I'm looking at something. It's pretty early. I'm looking at something on Demiris Nagulov, which is uh, he's an M1 lightweight who came to the UFC. He's super cool, and it's um, it's kind of a break from not writing super long articles about guys with long careers like Rafael Asuncao. Uh I think I also have something on Michael Johnson coming up. Um, and yeah, those those two. Kyle, how about you? I have one piece in the pipeline, which is a piece on the uh, Burkow versus Giorgio Petrosian. Um, yes. Part of a, uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, which is basically finished. I've just got to write about the fight itself. I've done all the pre and post fight, and that was obviously I've seen the fight multiple times. Um, that's part of a, uh, a wider uh, sort of site wide uh, series on Petrosian with a lot of us contributing uh, to it. Um, so, be out until all those pieces are finished, but we're not that far off that kind of a multimedia series featuring articles, video commentaries, video analysis, and uh, big uh, stylistic breakdown as well. So um, that's that's the only thing I've got in the pipeline, right and wise. And uh, uh, if you guys follow me on social media, you'll see I'm, I'm I'm pretty much sort of easing back now on the uh, on the writing I'm doing. I'm working more on video projects, so um, you won't see me around uh, too much on the site, but. Um, on the podcasts um hopefully and you know this was really fun always love talking to these boys and uh really fun whilst we're on the topic of the podcasts i'm sure the other guys will give shout outs but i have to remind you by listening to this on apple or spotify or whatever it's five star rating and a review because it makes the uh, podcast more visible and, uh, the more visible we are the more successful we might be and the more successful we are the, the more content we'll be able to bring you so um I'm sure the other guys are going to tell you uh, other such means to uh, support us, but something easy and free like that is uh, as good as anything. Yeah, and if you're fine with it not being free, as always, our Patreon is available. Uh, become a patron, and you can ask questions like the ones that we answered here. Uh, I think that's uh, that's all we have. I'm good. So I'm good on sure. this too. Um, I think Serum and I will look. <clears throat> we'll look at the upcoming schedule. Um, we may have a more we have a couple more questions that we need to answer, but uh, in general, we are still in some ways kind of at the behest of uh, of the UFC and what they produce. But you no, know, for patrons, we are. I just finished up the DC Hate Cast. 
did four episodes of that. Yes. The first one, first one was by myself, and then I did an episode with Ryan, an episode with our good friend Connor Rebush of Heavy Hands, and then I did the last episode with uh, just a friend of ours, a cool thought, or our good friend Sandro. So um, those are now available for the patrons. I think Ed said they're going to be going up pretty soon. So if you get a chance to listen to those and want to hear me rant about Daniel Cormier, it might be your cup of tea. Uh, I, love Daniel, yeah, so. I love Daniel Cormier. I'm, I'm leaving, that's the last thing I'm going to say. I love Daniel Cormier. Cancel. Still might enjoy the 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 podcast though. <laughs> you still might, it might be worth giving him a listen. Well, no, no, I'll, I'll love it. I'm I'm going to love it because I'll get this. You know, hear the analysis. I'm you know I'm not black and white. I love DC, but yeah, you know, I see there's issues with his style. Suram said he's going to cancel me. Um, you can't can't cancel me. It's it's just not possible. You can't yeah. hard to Foiled hard to cancel again. the one hard to cancel the guy who got us all together to do this. Um, so, so that is that is the end of the podcast. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, check out all of our stuff on thefightside.com. You can follow Kyle at uh, Puglis, Pulgas Boxio. P U L G A S B O X E O. Um, you can follow Surum at at Surum M says. Do you like how I have these memorized now? I've said them so many times. Perfect. And then mine is at dmarty77. Uh, again, follow and check out the, site, the fight site. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you soon. Stay safe.